Have you ever been bullied, belittled, betrayed, abused? You know, we live in a world where evildoers often seem to get away with it. Now, maybe you've been the victim of some injustice, wronged in some way, and everything in you wants to retaliate and get even. You know, there's a, uh, an innate sense of justice in every one of us, isn't there? It seems so unfair when the wicked get their way. So often it feels like we only have two alternatives, fight or flight. We can fight, which means we retaliate and get even, in which case we just mirror the evil. Or else take flight, submit, surrender, do nothing. Either way, darkness seems to win. But is there another way? It was a chilly December evening in 1955 when a 42-year-old seamstress called Rosa boarded a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. She is returning home after a long day of work. She took a seat near the middle of the bus, just behind the front white section. At the next stop, more passengers got on, and soon every seat in the white section was taken. The bus driver, who was known to humiliate the black passengers, told the four in the middle row to go and stand at the back of the bus so a white man could sit down. Three of them did as they were told. Rosa looked straight at the bus driver and said no. It wasn't premeditated, but there had been a number of racial atrocities, including the mistreatment of another black woman for not giving up her seat, and the death of a 14-year-old boy who had been lynched. And so Rosa, who was a devout Christian and a deaconess in her church, she said no. She didn't retaliate by shouting at the driver, telling him what she thought of him. Neither did she just submit to the injustice. She just said no. She said, the time had come when I'd been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. I decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen. Rosa was arrested, but it led to a huge outcry and the boycott of public buses by the black community in Montgomery. It was Rosa's response that in many ways made her the ideal candidate to test the unjust laws of the Jim Crow South. It's what really launched the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks made a big difference in a world of injustice. For her, it was neither fight nor flight. She chose another way. And that's what I want us to look at in this next message from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read from Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So in this passage, Jesus gives us yet another example of righteousness, or a right way of living, that is revolutionary in our world, but should characterise his followers. 
And these words are particularly relevant to our own culture today, where retaliation or revenge is normal, and our own capacity for vengeance is fueled by a, a never-ending stream of movies like John Wick or The Equalizer or just about any Liam Neeson movie you can watch. I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. We love it, don't we? We love movies where the evildoers get their comeuppance. And surely it's not wrong to feel that. I mean, we have, as I said, this inbuilt sense of justice and equity that surely has come from God, because he is himself a God of justice and equity. But there's a right way of responding to evildoers that he expects from us, his people. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that phrase is found in several places in the Old Testament, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It was a rule of law that uh, became known as lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of retaliation. And it was used in many ancient societies. Now it, it sounds negative, doesn't it? You know, an eye for an eye. But actually its intention was very positive because it was designed to stop people from taking the law into their own hands and to prevent the escalation of violence. It seems that the ancient world knew nothing of equity or fairness. Retaliation was often far worse than the original crime and so you know things would kind of spiral down into chaos. But when you think about it, we haven't progressed much since, have we? Uh, it's like that scene uh, from the movie The Untouchables, where Sean Connery plays Jim Malone, a tough Irish-American cop in Chicago who has been recruited to deal with the mob. And he says this classic line, Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's what the law of retaliation was intended to deal with, to stop that kind of thing happening and make sure that the response to wrongdoing was both just and fair. Not that you literally took an eye for an eye, but the judges would assess damages and make sure that the punishments and compensation fit the crime. And that principle continues to be foundational to our own justice system today. But it was a law that was never intended to be used by individuals to settle their disputes. It was always intended for the judges and courts, as we see clearly in Deuteronomy 19, where it says the parties involved are to appear before the judges, who will then inquire diligently, and then it will be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. So when Jesus quoted this law and then said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. He was not contradicting the original law and the good that it did in society, but rather addressing the hearts of his followers, that we ourselves are not to be vengeful or to take matters into our own hands to try and get even. Jesus is saying, this is how I want you personally to respond to wrongdoing. He's saying, do not resist the evildoer. Now, what does that mean? Are we meant to be passive and submissive in the face of evil, allow people to walk all over us, you know, become doormats? Shouldn't we be standing up to evil and injustice? And what about Rosa Parks? Was she wrong to say no? Isn't that resisting? 
Some Christians have taken Jesus's words to mean that they should not resist evil in any situation, which is surely wrong thinking. You know, uh, turning the other cheek doesn't, for example, mean that you should stay in an, an abusive relationship. So what was Jesus saying? First, Jesus wasn't saying we should not resist evil, but rather the evildoer, the person who has wronged you. This is personal. Second, the word resist that Jesus uses is not passive. It means don't be in opposition to them. Don't forcefully oppose them. Maybe a better word is retaliation. We're not to retaliate. As theologian John Stott says, authentic Christian non-resistance is non-retaliation. There's another very respected theologian called Walter Wink, who has written a lot about this, he wrote a book about what he calls Jesus's third way. It's a way that's neither fight nor flight. He says that when Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil, the correct translation of those words is still preserved for us in the way that they are quoted in three other places in the New Testament, where it says, do not repay evil for evil. So Jesus is not saying that we should submit to evil, but rather we should refuse to oppose it on its own terms. We should transcend both passivity and violence by adopting this third way. And the examples that Jesus then gives show us what that might look like. Now, each example has a specific application to the culture of the time, but contains general principles for us to live by today. And just to be clear, this is not intended for everyone, but for those who are following Jesus and who may well be persecuted for his sake, which I think is the primary context here, as Jesus made clear at the beginning of his sermon in the Beatitudes, where he said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Are you following Jesus? Do you call yourself a Christian? then this is how we're meant to respond. This is how we're meant to be salt and light in the world. So let's just take a look at each of these examples. First, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what Jesus is describing there is not so much a physical attack, more like an insulting slap. How do we know that? Well, because think about it, you can't slap someone on the right cheek, not if you're right-handed. It would have to be a slap with the back of your hand. And in that culture, like other cultures today, a back slap was considered a great insult. It was demeaning, intended to put you in your place and make you feel like you're a nothing. Imagine how you would feel if someone humiliated you today, put you down in some way. Maybe they shamed you on social media. You may well feel like retaliating, getting even, getting back at them in some way. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek to them. Don't resist. Don't retaliate. Just lovingly absorb it. Forgive it. Swallow your pride and turn the other cheek. But it's hard, isn't it? Now, at one level, it's meant to stop the kind of petty retaliations that go on in everyday life. Like, you know, your neighbor blows snow into your yard, so you return the favor. Someone in your workplace buys everyone a coffee except you. So you buy everyone donuts and leave them out. Someone unfriends you, you unfriend them. But Jesus is saying, look, we're to behave differently to the world. We turn the other cheek. 
or as it says in the message translation of this text, no more tit-for-tat stuff, all right? But at another level, like Rosa Parks, it might mean saying no. As I said earlier, non-resistance doesn't mean staying in an abusive relationship. So when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, you might be thinking, why? So he can slap me again? That's what's often been taught. But as Walter Wink points out, when you turn the other cheek, he can no longer backslap you. Think about it. Try it out on someone, or maybe not. But the point is, you're not just passively surrendering to the oppressor and neither are you slapping him back and escalating the violence. You choose a third way, the way of non-violent resistance. You are saying, no, enough. I want to be treated like a human being. Is there someone you need to say no to? Let's look at the next example. Jesus said, if anyone would sue you take, and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. So in this example, Jesus takes things a step further. He's not just saying, do not repay evil with evil, but rather repay evil with good. And we read something similar in Romans 12, where the apostle Paul says this. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. In other words, it will have the effect of shaming him or her. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're not just called to turn the other cheek, but in the face of injustice and being treated unfairly, we respond by saying, I'm gonna show you love anyway. Now, what about the third illustration Jesus gives? He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And he's referring there to a, a common practice in the ancient world. It was where a Roman soldier could coerce anyone he found on the street to carry his load for a mile. It was a practice that was despised throughout the empire because it was forced labor. An example of this, it seems, was when the Roman soldiers coerced Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus's cross when Jesus could no longer do so. But there were limits. The military code restricted this practice to one mile. So what did Jesus say? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go within two miles. Imagine the effect that would have on the person who was forcing you to do this. You know, you've been treated as an unequal, forced to do something by an oppressor. But now you offer to carry the load another mile of your own free will. Can you imagine the soldier's surprise? Why would you do that? What are you up to? This soldier has enjoyed feeling superior, using his power and authority to force someone to do something. But now he's been put into a position where that's no longer the case. It's like he's thrown off balance. The oppressed now has the initiative. He has recovered his humanity. Can you see? It's demonstrating to the aggressor a different way of treating people, treating them as equals with dignity and with kindness. So again, it's neither fight nor flight. It was neither retaliating nor begrudgingly submitting. It's choosing this third way, the way of Jesus, repaying evil with kindness. 
And that's how Christ followers respond to the bullies. We don't try and get even with them, neither do we just submit to them or try to outwit them because we are seeking their transformation. As Walter Wink wrote, the logic of Jesus' examples in Matthew 5 goes beyond both inaction and overreaction to a new response fired in the crucible of love that promises to liberate the oppressed from evil, even as it frees the oppressor from sin. In the final illustration that Jesus gives, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, does that mean that we're to give to every panhandler who asks us for money? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, you know, I know in the past I've given money to people where it's probably been spent on drugs or something. It's probably wiser to take the time to buy someone a meal or clothes, as we heard in Romans 12. You know, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And as Jesus says in Luke 6, 35, love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. We will hear more about that next week from Brittany Drew. But Jesus is calling his followers here to a life of generosity. As John Stott puts it, this man does not hit back returning evil for evil, but instead seeks to return good for evil. So willing to give to the uttermost his body, his clothing, his service, and his money if required to. Now that is radical righteousness. This is a revolutionary way of living in this world. It's what marks us as Christ followers, and it brings transformation to individuals, families, communities, and society, because it's the way of God's kingdom. It brings the kingdom of heaven to earth. But who can live like this? How is it possible? Because none of this comes naturally to us, does it? Now, before I answer that, let me just address the issue of justice, because there will be those who struggle with the thought of oppressors and uh, persecutors getting away with their evil doing. You know, where is the justice in this, you may ask? But what we've got to understand is that while the Bible prohibits God's people from exercising vengeance, it's not because retribution is wrong. It's because it belongs to God alone. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that's the verse I missed out in Romans 12. It's verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Only God can do that justly and with equity, because only God sees everything and knows the hearts of men. Now, his justice might be exercised through the state, which, as Paul goes on to say in Romans 13, is a divine institution with power to administer justice and punishment, an eye for an eye, so on. But that can create, you know, a tension for us, because we may find ourselves in a situation where the right thing to do is to call the police on someone so that they can be brought to justice, or so that we can find protection through the law. But at the same time, it might mean praying for that person, forgiving that person, and seeking their good. And there may be times, you know, when the state lets us down, because no earthly justice system is perfect. In fact, in some countries it seems non-existent. But we live with the promise that one day there will be justice. Evildoers will not 
prosper. Unless they repent, they will get their comeuppance. I will repay, says the Lord. A day is coming when every wrong will be made right, when evil will be finally eradicated and all suffering will cease. A day is coming when the meek will inherit the earth. But until that day, we are called to trust in the Lord and do good. But again, how can we live that way? It's only by having our hearts changed through the power of the gospel and the indwelling spirit. And that starts by us remembering that as followers of Jesus, we are following his example. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not retaliate, even though he could have called down the armies of heaven. In Isaiah 50 verse 6, it says of Jesus, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Instead, even as they crucified him, he prayed for the evildoers to be forgiven. But who did, who did Peter say that Jesus suffered for? Did you notice? He suffered for us. As he goes on to say in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It was our sin that put him on the cross. It was all our wrongdoing. Every time we put someone down, every time we acted unfairly or were unkind or spiteful or hurt someone, it was like another hammer blow that drove the nails through his hands and through his feet. And yet he willingly submitted himself to this injustice. He died in our place. He bore our sins so that we could be forgiven and go free but not so we could just go and live for ourselves, but for him. We live for him, to represent him, following his example in this world, because we remember that God was not fair with us. He did not treat us justly or with equity. He did not treat us as our sins deserve, but even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we might live for righteousness. He showed us infinite mercy. And when we submit our lives to him and seek to live for him, he gives us his spirit to dwell within us, to empower us to love others just like he has loved us. After Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus, a young Baptist minister found himself leading the bus boycott. But he lived under the constant threat to his life. It was on January 27, 1956, that he was woken in the middle of the night by a phone call. And the voice said that if he wasn't out of town in three days, they were going to kill his family. Well, you can imagine he couldn't go back to sleep with his wife and infant daughter in the next room. So he made himself a cup of coffee and he sat in the kitchen, absolutely scared to death, trying to figure out how to escape Montgomery. But then something very unexpected happened. He felt something stirring within him, an inner voice that spoke to him. It said, stand up for righteousness. 
Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. He said the voice promised to never leave me, never to leave me alone. And that young Baptist minister, he experienced the presence of Christ that night and it took away his fear. It changed the way that he saw the world. He saw it with new eyes and he knew that he could face anything. And of course, as you know, that young minister was Martin Luther King. But his new view of the world was about to be tested because four nights later, he was speaking at a rally when someone ran in and shouted that King's home had been firebombed with his wife and daughter inside. King ran to the house where he found his family unharmed. But an angry mob from his black community gathered outside, armed with guns and bats, ready to retaliate. King stood up on his smouldering porch and he addressed the crowd. He said, he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. I want you to love your enemies, be good to them, love them and let them know you love them. For we are doing what is right. We are doing what is just and God is with us. Well, the mob put down their guns and bats and they started singing Amazing Grace. Historians look back at that night as the turning point in the civil rights movement. It was the night that non-violence and love were put into practice. But in actual fact, the real turning point was four nights earlier in King's kitchen when he encountered Jesus Christ and it changed him. It changed how he saw his oppressors. It changed how he saw the world. So may we all encounter Jesus Christ even through his words in this message today, I pray that we'll see our own relationships and situations and the world around us with new eyes, that we would be empowered to be a different kind of people, a Christ-like people in this world. Lord, will you fill us with your spirit and transform our hearts, I pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Now here are some questions for group discussion. First of all, what was I trying to communicate? How did I explain it? Secondly, what do you find most difficult about Jesus's instructions? And thirdly, what do you sense the Holy Spirit telling you to do?